Uh, I want to begin by telling you about a book that you're probably familiar with. Uh, this is a, a fairly famous book. It was um, written 178 years ago, uh, written by Charles Dickens. Uh, the book that I'm talking about is a short work called A Christmas Carol. In the original, uh, it was called this, A Christmas Carol in Prose, A Ghost Story of Christmas. That, I think, is one of the original um, inside part of the cover and the original illustrations. Uh, this book was an immediate success. So it was published on December 19th in 1843, and by Christmas of that year, it was all sold out. So all the copies everywhere gone in London and England, I think. And from that year to today, it has never been out of print. Every year, more and more copies of A Christmas Carol. Of course, there have been adaptations in theater, in TV, in movies, of course. The best one being Muppet Christmas Carol, right? That's the, that's the best one. Uh, my question is, why is this such a popular story? I mean, it's a story that has spanned generations, for one thing, also different places on the globe. What is it about this story that is so compelling, that people like it so much? Uh, it's got a lot going for it. Uh, there's some drama, certainly action. There's ghosts in it. Uh, there's even a little romance. But the best thing about it, the thing that I think we all think of when we think of A Christmas Carol, is the change that happens in Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He goes from being this grumpy, stingy, hateful old man to being a source of generosity and kindness and love in, to the people in his life. It, it's an amazing transformation. In fact, I want to read for you just the last, from the last page of the story, uh, after Scrooge has had his awakening and he's promised to do better, and, and here's what it says. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city or town or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the change in him, but he let them laugh, and he little heeded them. Just a beautiful story, right, of transformation, from this miserly old man to, to see the, the heart in him begin to grow. And the reason that people uh, are drawn to it, obviously, is because we love these kinds of stories. We love stories of redemption, right? When people's hearts are transformed, lives are changed. Uh, this is, I think, the reason why people keep coming back to it again and again and again. And for those of us in the church, uh, this kind of a story should resonate with us because this is our story, right? Here is a man who is utterly lost in his old cold-heartedness, the hardness of his heart, and yet an epiphany of truth that he saw himself more clearly than he ever had before and was transformed. That's, that's in a sense, our story. We also come to an awakening. We also have an epiphany of truth. It's just empowered by the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to see ourselves as we truly are, wretched, sinners, hard-hearted, and yet we see Jesus as who he truly is, loving, gracious Savior, and from that, our lives are changed, or they should be changed. We should be a people who, who have grown in our thankfulness and our joyfulness and our love. That last one is, is what we're going to focus on today, the, the, what it means to be uh, loving people, Christian love. That's the focus of our time because that's the focus of what Peter's going to write about here in this section of his letter. Um, this sermon is just going to have one point, okay? Doesn't mean it's going to be shorter. It's just going to have one point, and it is this, taken directly from the text of Scripture, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
That's the command on our lives in light of this text. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Um, Let me show it to you. This is in verse 22 of the ESV translation. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We need to understand what Peter's saying here. Um, it's clear, but we want to understand the nuance of what he's saying. The, the one another means that Peter's focus here is on the love that we are showing each other in relationships within the church. Of course, we're called to love those people in our community, certainly, but here his focus is on how we relate to each other. Earnestly means truly, genuinely, and from a pure heart is, uh, is kind of a callback to last week where Peter was writing about the call to holiness. Um, this this pure-heartedness means that our way of interacting with people isn't about self-interest. It's a willingness in us to be gracious and patient and kind, uh, even if the people around us are not treating us in that way. Uh, It's pretty much impossible, if you think about it, to overemphasize the importance of love in the Christian faith. It's actually the answer that is given from the lips of Jesus in terms of how we should behave. Uh, Let me show it to you. This is Matthew 22. During the ministry of Jesus, people are asking him questions. Verse 35, a lawyer asked Jesus uh, a question to test him. Teacher, he said, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So clearly, love uh, should mark us as Christians. The question I think we need to ask, though, I want to ask two questions about this. The first one is, is what is the basis for that love? What is the, the motivation? What is the thing that enables us to actually love in that way? Because that's what Peter speaks about in the first section. We're going to look at that. So what is the basis for this kind of love that we are called to? Uh, I'm going to read verse 22 again, all the way to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we see here the basis that Peter's saying for Love as a Christian is not anything in us. That's what he's saying in this section here. It's not in us, but it's the power of God in us. That we have been changed. We have been transformed. He's he's giving a contrast. He's saying um, on our own, in our flesh, that's the word he uses, we are like grass or flowers. Uh, We know that those things fade, right? They rot. Uh, They seem very alive, right? Flowers in a field, a spring field of flowers seem vibrant, full of life, but we know that they're not going to last very long. And he's saying that's what we're like. We, in our own flesh, right, just as we're born naturally, we seem to be very alive. In fact, we seem vibrant. We we seem innocent. Think about little babies, right? They're so cute. They're so full of of life. I mean, this is why Ann Geddes has had such a great career as a photographer. You know, Ann Geddes, she dresses up the babies and all those crazy things. Uh, I thought we should show some because they're so cute. Look at them, little fish, 
little bumblebee, little lily pad. I mean, they are just, you, you can't help but look at them and think to yourself, they are full of innocence and love and sweetness and all good things, right? But as Christians, uh, we know the truth. They are little baby sinners. Uh, they will grow up to be governed by their sin nature. If God doesn't intervene, the way that they live and the way they interact with others will be completely governed by their sin. That's the flesh that Peter is referring to. And it's difficult for us as human beings to see this about ourselves, especially when we, we think of our youth, right? So vibrant, so full of promise. So I thought to help us just to kind of see the true nature of what Peter is talking about, about us, even at our best, um, I thought I would add some captions to these photos. Here are the photos. I want to just add, now I don't know if this is actually true about these babies when they grew up, but I could imagine it'd be very well true that these things would be true of them because these are typical human responses, right? So our little fish there could very well take her friends for granted, right? Be a bad friend, take advantage of people. Little bumblebee would probably she will be a judgmental, right? Wife, she will be judgmental towards her husband and this little guy will be vindictive when he feels wronged. That is how people tend to interact in our sin, in our hardness of heart, even though we look cute, even though we're vibrant, we seem full of life, really there is a, a wretched sinfulness in each one of us. Peter's saying, just like grass, just like flowers, we're gonna rot in so many ways, not just physically, but emotionally, morally, especially when we are hurt, right? Especially when people treat us poorly. Even the best of us is gonna fade given enough time. Which is why, here's the point, which is why we, we in of ourselves can't be the basis for this kind of Christian love. We, we, we can't do it. We don't have the strength. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the stability of character. I mean, just think about who we are and how we react to the people in our lives. Think of it. One act of betrayal by someone who's close to us will turn us into the most vengeful and vindictive and bitter person. Right? That, that, that's very often how we react in our flesh. We overreact very often. We allow petty differences to ruin friendships. We hold grudges. For us to have any hope of actually loving one another earnestly from a pure heart, we need a much stronger basis than just our own character. And thankfully, uh, Peter tells us that we do have one. We do have one. See, the command to love one another is not based on our flesh. Here's the contrast that he's, that he's making here. It's rather based on the transforming power of God's word. Look again at uh, verse 23. This is right after the command, the instruction to love one another earnestly. What does he say? Why? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The new life that is birthed in us by the gospel, by the power of God, then gives us a new nature, a new moral capacity, new desires, new power. So what Peter's saying, right, to the original churches that would receive this letter and to us, what he's saying is, look, remember your story. Like, remember who you are. But before God's work in your life, you were like, you were like grass. You were just in the flesh, you were weak in every way. You did not have the capacity to really love people in this way. You were lost in your sin, but, but then you heard a message. You heard a message of good news about a God who loved you in spite of your sin, about a God who sent his own son 
to come to the cross and die for you so that you would be freed from your bondage to that sin. This message gripped your soul. This message flooded you with a sense of of love and, and purpose and forgiveness and it transformed you from being a perishable being to being an imperishable being. This new life came into you through the word of God by the power of the spirit of God. So when Peter says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, he doesn't mean just just grit your teeth. Just try, just white knuckle it, try to be nice, try to be good to the people around. He, He doesn't mean that. He means remember who you are. Remember the glorious truth that we have been redeemed by the power of God and that power doesn't stop when we come to faith. It continues on throughout our entire lives, enabling us to love others in our life as God has loved us. This is what it means to live the Christian life. A life of hopefulness, as we've seen earlier in 1 Peter, a life of holiness, and a life of love. But notice the way that this teaching on love is framed. Peter isn't saying, look, um, if you're interested you now have access to this immense reservoir of gospel love. He's not saying, look, when you find someone that you really like and you really want to love them well, then you tap into the way that God loved you. That's not not what he's saying. It's a command on us to love everyone this way. Whether we like them or not, whether they irritate us or not, he's saying this is how you must treat each other. Peter's not the only one who writes this way. Look at John. In John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, he says this, we love Because he, that is God, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother or his sister or his mother, his father, the people in our lives. Now some of us um, bristle, I think, at this kind of language around love. Especially maybe if you're, if you're new to the church, you're thinking, this seems heavy-handed, right? To command me to I have to love the people around me, but this is consistent throughout the Bible in terms of the call on our lives, how we are to treat each other. I remember uh, one time hearing uh, Pastor John MacArthur, I don't know if you know him, uh, from California. He was, he was, uh, he's been in ministry for years and years and years, and he was talking about um, some of the things that people ask him, and one of the things was to do with marriage. A lot of people come up to him, and they will say, Pastor John, you know, um, I, I need your help. I'm not sure what to do. I've, I've fallen out of love with my spouse. I just, I don't love them anymore, and I'm just, I'm not sure what to do. And he says, he says his answer to people who ask that is always the same. He says, what you need to do is you need to repent, because you're in sin. You're you're commanded to love your spouse. You've made a commitment to love your spouse. And so you need to repent and turn back and and find ways to love them. And that, that can sound harsh, but what we need to realize is that true love in marriage in particular is, is always more than a feeling. It's a commitment to love someone in good times and in bad. That's what the, the vows are all about. In fact, loving the people around us when we feel like it. It seems natural, but it it never lasts. It's not a strong enough basis for love in all the relationships of our lives because there are always reasons that we will find in our flesh not to want to love others. And they will seem like really good reasons. 
I mean, you just talk to people long enough, you'll see we all have reasons why there's certain people. I mean, there are husbands who will say, I, I can't love my wife. She's so controlling. She's, she's so difficult. And the wife will say, I can't love my husband. He's so passive. He never does anything. There are roommates who have trouble ro- loving their other roommate because they say that they're, you know, in, uh, inconsiderate, selfish, self-absorbed. You know, the living space is a disaster. In, in family dynamics, right? I can't love my brother-in-law. He's so argumentative. So difficult. Can't love my parents because of the way they treated me in my childhood. There's, in the flesh, there are always reasons. We think good reasons for us not to love the people around us. But what we need to recognize is as Christians, love is not an option. Love is part of how we show obedience and faithfulness to our Lord who has loved us. And the other thing that we are to recognize that we see here in this text is that in the Spirit, by the word, through the gospel, there is always hope for us to be able to love people in this way, to keep loving people in this way. See, Peter is saying, if you have been genuinely born again to a living hope, then you already have the capacity to love earnestly from a pure heart. Because just like your love is now in Christ, or your life is now in Christ, your love is now also in Christ. And that means that it is connected to this deep, massive reservoir of love that God has for us. I was reminded of this uh, this week. Uh, Sometimes Don and I do uh, devotionals in the morning. There's this book we're reading by Charles Spurgeon. And on Wednesday of this week, uh, the reading was a reflection on the nature of the love of Jesus. Just the, the depth of his love. And it struck me because he connects it then to how my heart should respond to that love. So I want to read it to you. It goes this way. Uh, Love of Christ, he says, His love was indeed stronger than the most terrible death, for it endured the trial of the cross triumphantly. It was a lingering death, but love survived the torment. A shameful death, but love despised the shame. A penal death, but love bore our iniquities. A forsaken, lonely death from which our eternal Father hid his face, but love endured the curse. And gloried over all. Never such love. Never such death. It was a desperate duel, but love won the day. What then, my heart? Here's the connection. What then, my heart? Hast thou no emotions excited within at the contemplation of such heavenly affection? Which is another way of saying, how can you receive this kind of love and not be changed? Not be compelled to love the people around you in the very same way? Look, if you're struggling to love certain people in your lives, first of all, you can be sure you're not alone. But secondly, it could very well be that that you have not contemplated the love of Christ in the cross enough. Our tendency when we struggle to love someone is to think a lot about the way that they're treating us. But that won't help us to love them more. What will help us is to spend time in the word of God in prayer filling our mind with the truth, just getting to the place of seeing the depth of Christ's love, the extent to which he went to show us love, forgiveness, and grace, and praying that the Spirit of God would compel us to be softened by that love, to to be empowered to love others in the same way. That's, That's the basis for this kind of love. It's not in us. It's in the gospel itself, in the love of Christ. Second question Practically, what does it look like to love in this way? 
Like, like what would Peter expect us to do and to, how to treat each other? Well, he gives us a, a couple of things. He says that we need to put away sin and we need to long for spiritual growth. And they come in the next few verses. Um, here's chapter two, verse one. He says, so, so in light of all of that, the call to love, the basis of that love, put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Take a look at those words, right? That's a list of sins. But notice that it's not all the sins. It's not all the bad things that we can do. He's kind of focusing on the kinds of sins that are relational. The kinds of sins that destroy relationships, pull apart marriages. And notice, notice each one. It's very specific. I just want to go through them briefly just so we can uh, recognize or kind of see how destructive each of these things can be. Uh, malice, to begin with. This is a desire to harm others. Uh, this is really dark. Uh, this is more than just hurting others in the heat of battle. You know, sometimes you're in conflict, you're, you're arguing, you're fighting, and you say things uh, to hurt someone else, and it's just kind of in the heat of the moment. That's, that's bad, but this is worse. Because malice is when two days later, you're totally calm, you're not heated anymore, and you still want them to be hurt. You still have a desire to harm them in you. You're that hard-hearted, that, that angry. Malice is incredibly destructive in any relationship when you allow it to take root. Hypocrisy, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Hypocrisy is a basically an inconsistency in our lives, um, usually between uh, what we say and what we do. And it also is very destructive uh, because it, it tears apart the thing that we um, seem to be building. So in, in public, think about leaders in the church or at home, parents, pastors, right? We're, we're trying to build something up, building a ministry, building a family. But in secret, because of our sin, we're actually tearing it down. And you only see that it's being torn down when the truth comes to light. When the infidelity is revealed, the, the, whatever it is, the moral failing, and then everything just falls apart. So it's, hypocrisy tears at the fabric of relationships and trust, even if you can't see it in the moment. Eventually, it will be revealed it will be incredibly destructive. Envy uh, is a feeling of discontentment or resentment. Uh, and uh, this, you know, we usually, I think, think of this in terms of like personal terms. Like meaning, at first we might say, well, someone's envious. That's just in their own heart. Like it's, it's wretched. It's wrong. You're wanting something that you don't have. But, but we sometimes miss the fact that this actually hinders relationships. Because the person who is envious can't uh, love people the way that we are called to love people. We're called to rejoice when others rejoice, for example, or mourn when others mourn. The envious person is going to have a lot of trouble doing that because they aren't really happy when good things happen to other people. They see it all through the lens of what they are getting or what they are not getting. Same thing with mourning. To mourn for someone, you need to be genuinely heartbroken for what they are going through, but the envious person a lot of the times thinks to themselves, well, you know, they had it too easy to begin with. Right? I'm the one who's really hard done by. Envy is a destructive force because it isolates us and turns us inward on ourselves. Slander and deceit, I'll, I'll take together. These are both sins of the tongue. Uh, they have to do with how we handle the truth, how we handle lies. Uh, the deceiver hides the truth. The slanderer boldly lies and pretends that it's truth. Uh, one of the commentators I, I read I had a good line. He said this, some people, for some people, words are just tools to get what they want. And that strikes me as, as true and very destructive. 
I mean, if you're not too concerned about whether something's true or not, or loving enough, or actually a blessing, you just want what you want, you're going to say whatever it takes to get things to go your way. That's, that's very destructive, very hurtful. Clearly, this is not a good list. I mean, any one of these things has torn apart churches, has destroyed families, blown up friendships, ruined childhoods. And what we see here, what I think we're meant to see is that, that even a little bit of these things is very dangerous. Because even a little bit of these things in our lives, in our heart, in our minds, they, they tend to always grow. They seep into other areas of our lives. They, they, they harden our heart over time so that we can't love each other the way we should. In fact, things tend to uh, grow in the wrong way. Antagonism grows. Hate, vindictiveness grows as we interact with each other because of the presence of these things. It reminded me of, uh, of a movie from the 1980s, so you might not remember it. I don't think I've actually seen this movie, but it, it came to my mind. Uh, do you remember this movie, The War of the Roses? Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito. It's, it's basically a parable of marriage, in a sense. Danny DeVito plays a divorce lawyer, and he's telling the story of the worst divorce case that he ever dealt with. Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner. It begins with them in love, right? Younger, they, they marry, moves to Washington. He works there. She raises a family. Things are great for a number of years until they are not. Until, you know, their love for each other begins to fade. They become um, discontent. And they come to the place where they, they say they've fallen out of love for each other. But that's not where the story ends. Because in their divorce proceedings, they both become so vindictive and angry towards each other. All of the bitterness that they've been sort of brewing underneath the surface just comes out. They fight over everything. They fight over their house in particular. They both won't move out. So they both stay there. They begin to sabotage each other. Dinner parties are ruined. A pet dies. They just hate each other so much. They're at each other. And the whole point of the story is to show what happens when we allow these kinds of things to rule our hearts. It can be incredibly destructive. In fact, the point of the movie really is that any one of us can end up in this position if we don't go to war with the sin in our hearts. And that's what we see from Peter here. Notice, notice the word he uses three times. He says, all. Put it all away. Put away all malice, all slander, all deceit. What he's saying is you can't let even a little bit of these things linger in our hearts or your minds. And we tend to do that. We tend to think, you know what, it's not a big deal. In fact, it's a, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. Right, this, this anger that I'm allowing to kind of just linger for this person that's so hurtful at the office. Next time they come and say something to me, I can just dwell on the things that I might like to do to them or something I hoped would happen to them. We think, we think that is innocent, really. There's not, nothing bad is going to happen, but what's so clear is that where sin is allowed to take root, it, it hardens our hearts. It prevents us from being loving and obedient. Peter says, we need to turn away from all of that. We need to repent of all of those kinds of sins. But more than that, we need to turn in a certain direction. We need to long for something greater. And this we find in the next two verses. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the imagery here is of nourishment, right? A baby longs for his mother's milk, gives them everything that they need. And Peter's saying Christians should long for spiritual milk, which, which is the gospel. It must be the gospel. That's what he's referring to because the gospel is the thing which brings us new life. 
but it's also the thing that uh, helps us to grow or compels us to grow in spiritual maturity throughout our lives. Because what the gospel does, the gospel sheds light on our sin. It confronts us, convicts us in our sin, but then compels us with the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. So Peter says, by it, by the gospel, we will grow up into salvation. What he doesn't mean by that, by the way, is that um, to be a Christian, you need to, you know, try to be good, try to be loving, uh, try to be obedient, and then eventually you will, you will grow up and you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. What he's saying is that if we are truly saved, that salvation, that saving work will, will uh, work its way into every area of our lives. So that we will grow up in our salvation. We will mature in our salvation. The, the theological word is sanctification. That we are saved and then we are sanctified. We have lots of words for it. Grow in godliness, grow in maturity, grow in Christ-likeness. It all, it all means the same thing. That God doesn't just save us in a moment and then say, I'll see you in heaven. He saves us and then he redeems us. Little by little, inch by inch, day by day, he shapes us to be more and more like his son. And it happens as we allow the Spirit of God to apply the gospel into every aspect of our lives, which looks like repenting of sin and embracing the, the ways of Christ. So just a couple examples of how this works practically. He gave us a list of sins that we're to turn away from. The way to answer those sins is the gospel. So for example, in the gospel, there's an answer to a struggle with envy. I mean, we we're just told earlier in 1 Peter that in Christ, we, are, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We've been richly blessed with the kingdom of God itself. I mean, how can we know that to be true about ourselves and then be jealous of someone's jet ski or boat, right? In the, in the gospel, we have every reason not to be envious, to be content with what we have. It answers the, the envy that we are tempted by. Uh, in the gospel, there's also an answer to our feelings of malice. For two reasons. One, we've received mercy. Even though we are hard-hearted, wretched sinners, God has been merciful, gracious, forgiving to us. We should be compelled to treat others that way. But also, also the gospel tells us that God is a righteous judge. And so sin will always be held to account. We don't have to feel, we, we often feel, I think, frustrated because it seems like there are people in our lives who are doing wrong and, and no one is doing anything about it. And so we feel compelled to do something about it. And yet what the gospel tells us is that no one is going get, to get away with anything in this world. Either people will receive the just punishment for their sin or even the people who are irritating us, they will receive the mercy of God. They will be saved. Either way, we are off the hook. Vengeance is not ours. It belongs to the Lord. See, the gospel gives us the answers that we need. And the Holy Spirit can help us by bringing the strength that we need when we're tempted, by bringing the conviction that we need to actually turn away from sin, actually love the people in our lives in this way. Because the truth is, even though it's really clear, this is not easy. It's very difficult. I heard this, I was reading, I don't go on Twitter that often, but I remember a month ago, there's a tweet from someone I kind of know, you know, a Twitter friend, and it was his anniversary. And he wrote something that really annoyed me. He wrote to his wife, honey, um, it's so easy being married to you. And I was like, man, I know this is a sermon about love, but I really wanted to punch him because that is so, 
such a misrepresentation of marriage. I mean, I know it's his anniversary. You have to say things like that. But, I'm, but the truth is that that's, that's not usually how marriage is. Marriage is wonderful. Marriage is uplifting. Marriage is such a gift of God. But it is difficult. Anyone who's been married for more than a honeymoon will tell you it's, it's difficult. You talk to anyone who's been married for any length of time. It's, it's, it's difficult. Human relationships are difficult. And yet what we have here in Scripture is, is the truth the promise of God that still in the difficulty, still in the hard-heartedness, still in the, the animosity that can grow over time, there is hope. There is hope because of the power of God in us, the power of Christ. This is how marriages are, are actually saved, by people who are humbled in their sin, people who, who stop pointing the finger and start realizing that maybe God is actually at work in me in this moment. Maybe there's some ways that I need to change. This is how friendships are healed and churches are united. It all hinges on gospel love that we actually allow to shape us, to shape the way that we interact with each other. See, right now, um, according to the flesh, there are lots of reasons to be at odds with the people in our lives. I mean, this always happens, I think, in times of trial and crisis, right? Because of covid Many of us have strong opinions about the way that things should happen, about what people should be doing, what the government should be doing, what our schools should be doing, our place of work, the church, our family, the people in our lives. We have, we have strong opinions about it, and they are probably not doing it exactly the way that we think they should be doing it. It's very frustrating. It's very irritating. It may be a real struggle just, just to have family gatherings for you at this moment because there's that kind of tension or maybe hard for you even to gather here on a Sunday morning. So l- let me be clear about what this is, this is not saying. This is not saying that you can't have convictions about certain important things in your life. It's not saying you just have to say, okay, I love everyone, so it doesn't matter what everyone does. It's not saying that there aren't times where we need to have Difficult conversations, speaking truth in love to the people in our lives. It's not loving if we never talk about sin. But what this is telling us, what it's trying to highlight for us, is the truth that for all human beings, our tendency, when someone is hard-hearted towards us, is to get hard, is to get harder, is to get angry, is, is to get vindictive or whatever the case may be, to want to hurt the people who are hurting us to tear down the people who are making us feel bad. What Peter is saying to us is, look, is that really what you long for? If you've tasted the goodness of God, the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace of God, is that kind of sin, that kind of hard-heartedness still sweet to you? Because if you've tasted the goodness of God, it should be bitter. You should want to spit it out and want to have nothing to do with it in your life. See, listen, it, does not take a pandemic for sin to tear apart our relationships, our church, our families. This is always going to be a challenge. There will always be people who irritate us, who hurt us, who slander us. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is, have you been born again? Have you been born again to a living hope? Have we experienced the undeserved, gracious, sacrificial love of Christ? If that's true, then why would we not want that or or be interested in that shaping us completely? Why would we not be on our knees saying, Lord Jesus, help me. I feel the hardness of heart. More than that, Lord God, I don't know if I see it the way that I should see it. Please, Holy Spirit, reveal to me those areas of pride and hard-heartedness 
so that I can do this well, so that I can honor you the way that I should. This call, I'll put it up one more time, this call to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, it, it's a call to taste the sweetness of the gospel of Jesus and hunger for it to transform us completely, both as individuals and, and as a church. And so my hope for us is that, is that there are people in our lives, relationships in our lives, maybe thoughts in our minds, feeling in our hearts that, we're, that the Holy Spirit is saying to us, look, this, this needs to be put away. There's work that needs to be done here in you. And you have the power to do it. You've been given the Spirit. Walk in that direction so that we can, we can love people the way that Christ loved us, so that the people around us, our community, would see in us the mark of Christ, so that we'd be able to have conversations where people say, I just, I don't know how you can love your spouse that way, or how you can be so gracious to that neighbor on the block who's so difficult, and we can say, yeah, it's actually nothing to do with me. It, it's Jesus. Can I tell you about how he's changed me? This is the call and the hope that we have in Christ. Let me pray that for us right now as we close. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you that even though we are hard-hearted, we are so temperamental, we tend to overreact, we just see everything through our own lens, uh, Lord Jesus, you love us still. You gave your life for us still. I thank you for that. I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that your love would indeed change us, that we, we would be a people, we would be a church that loves each other in spite of differences, in spite of even acts of betrayal or wrongs, Lord, that we would exemplify a gospel life, a hope-filled, holy, loving life by your grace, by your power. And we pray that this, the end of this would be that people are really blessed, that you are honored, and that others, Lord, in our community, in our lives, that don't yet have faith, would see that and say, that I, I need that, I want that. And that we would have an opportunity to give testimony to the to what you've done in our lives. So please, Lord, help us. I pray in particular for those that are, that are in relationships that are really struggling right now, struggling to be loving. Please, Lord, bring, bring your power, bring your conviction, and bring your help. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.